All right, well, we are going to be doing a session today on the ending of the book of Ezra. As we've taught through Ezra over the last few months, uh, we get to chapters 9 and 10, the last two chapters of the book, and it ends on quite a downer note regarding the sin of the people, and it ends with a mass divorce. Over 110 or so uh, Israelite men uh, are called upon by Ezra and others to divorce their wives and to send them away. These are wives who are from the foreign lands who worship idols. And so that, that's the question we're going to be looking at. Why does the book of Ezra end with mass divorce? It, it's quite a way for a book of the Bible to end. And there is a whole lot to talk about here. I may not really be giving you a definitive answer today, but I do want to give you at least different approaches people take to this seeming problem or difficulty in, in the book of Ezra. And uh, let's just go through it as quickly as we can. I got a lot of things to look at. So let's just remember here, the first time the gospel appears in the Bible to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, God says, I'll put enmity between you, that's Satan, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, that would be the seed of the serpent, and her offspring, or her seed, and then her seed is the he here, who shall bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. So this is clearly referring to Christ coming and uh, crushing Satan's head on the cross, but also being bitten in the heel in the process. And uh, the promise here is for her seed or offspring to come undo the works of Satan and the destruction and death that have come through Satan. You, you flash forward to Abraham's call, Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring or seed after you throughout their generations and for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, you'll notice here this phrase, and to your offspring right here, and and to your offspring right here. This phrase is used repeatedly in the Abrahamic account, and clearly it refers to, in one sense, all of Abraham's children uh, who will be outnumbering the stars of the heavens, but there is a special sense in which it's referring to the one ultimate representative offspring of Abraham. Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians 3.16, and now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, as we saw. It does not say into offsprings, here with the plural, referring to many, but ultimately referring to one, and to your offspring, who what? Who is Christ. So the ultimate offspring of Abraham is Christ himself. So the promise that of Eve's offspring, there will be a particular seed who will crush Satan. That is passed on to Abraham, to his offspring, which yes, it refers to all of his children, but there's ultimately one saving child who is Christ. Now let's get back into the middle of the Old Testament, and we'll look back at the time of Ezra. Ezra has come, he's been teaching the people for four and a half months, and in chapter 9, verse 1, he gets this news. Gets this news. After these things have been done, the officials approached me, Ezra speaking in the first person here, and said, the people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. So this is idolatry right here, abominations. And it, he compares it to all the, the peoples before, the Canaanites, etc. He even includes Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. In other words, the, 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 the people known in the Old Testament for paganism, for false idol worship, they are acting just like those peoples. They're intermarrying with the people whose spiritual ancestry goes back to all the pagan peoples of the Old Testament who have caused so much havoc amongst the people of, the, of God. Now look at Ezra 9 too. Next verse. For they have taken some of their daughters, 
So that is the pagan daughters to be wives for themselves uh, and, and for their sons so that the holy race, literally this is the holy seed, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So we're in big trouble. It's not just the, the, the fringe edge riffraff of the people of God who are doing this. No, no, we're talking about officials and chief men. Leaders uh, have been foremost in this faithlessness. Why that was, I didn't mention this in my sermon, but uh, very possibly, can't prove this, Ezra doesn't spell it out, but if the officials and chief men are most responsible for intermarrying with the peoples of the lands, very possibly the reason why is for worldly security through political alliances. You could look back up into, into 1 Kings 11 and those chapters earlier in, about Solomon. He married Pharaoh's daughter, one of Pharaoh's daughters. Why? Solomon was sinfully trying to seek peace with Egypt and protection from Egypt's great army, not by trusting the Lord, putting his faith in Yahweh, but instead by using his own fleshly means to bring about peace, worldly security. And so he thought, if I marry, if I intermarry with the Egyptian daughter and I make a place for her gods in, in Israel and put up uh, false gods, idols of worship on the hills of, in Israel, then I will maintain peace with Egypt. I'll have prosperity and I won't have to worry about their army attacking us because of this way of getting security. But that was a sinful reason. Very possibly the officials and chief men were foremost in this intermarriage because they're trying to maintain peace with the Samaritans and, and the, essentially the Canaanites, uh, the people around them who are worshiping false gods. But this is a sinful way to go about getting that kind of security. And it was not, uh, it was not trusting the Lord. But you'll notice here, very important to see, we are told that the holy race or seed here has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. So the holy seed, well, we, we've seen Eve is going to have an offspring or a seed who's going to crush Satan. Abraham's offspring is ultimately Christ, right? And here they're mixing the holy race or the holy seed. This is the messianic line of Christ with paganism, which threatens the security of the people of God. Now, I believe the only other time this exact phrase, holy seed, is used in the Old Testament uh, is in Isaiah 6, 13. After Isaiah sees the Lord on the throne, it says this, And though a tenth remain in it, uh, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So this right here is referring to Assyria. Assyria just absolutely decimating the northern kingdom of Israel and destroying a lot of the southern kingdom. And it's pictured as a forest being cut down and all the trees are felled. And the Davidic line is, is reduced to a stump. And here the holy seed or the Davidic line is nothing but a stump. It's a felled tree. There is no reigning Davidic king. A couple chapters, a few chapters later, Isaiah 11 picks up on this idea. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. So this is the Davidic, Davidic line or Davidic kingship. And it says that although it looks absolutely hopeless, a shoot is going to rise from the stump of Jesse. So there will be a Davidic king. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Next verse. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is clearly Jesus as the him. He's the Davidic king who's going to come out of that shoot. So you can see why it's so important to guard the holy seed of God's people because that's the messianic line. And to destroy the messianic line is to destroy the hope of the world, the hope that Christ will come. Now we really enter into the controversy. Ezra 10, 
Ezra prays and weeps bitterly. Verse 2, Shechaniah, the son of a few other men, addresses Ezra, we have broken faith. We've been faithless with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our gods. They're going to make a commitment to do what? To put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of God and let it be done according to the law. I will come back to this because they are trying to be faithful to the law and perhaps they are being faithful to the law. But the Old Testament law does not give a lot of detailed instruction about how to deal with the particular problem that is facing Ezra and the people. The Old Testament says don't intermarry with pagans. It doesn't say what you're supposed to do after a hundred plus people have intermarried with pagans. So Ezra and Shechaniah and others are looking at God's previous revelation in Exodus and Deuteronomy and such books, and they're trying to apply it to a fresh situation that was not explicitly addressed in the Torah, but they're taking the principles of Torah that ban intermarriage, and they're trying to apply it to the current situation where people have already sinned in this way and have already intermarried. What are we supposed to do? So they make an oath to do what was said. Ezra withdraws from them. They, they amass all the people together. The people say, listen, it's, it's raining, it's December. Uh, let's try to do this in a more orderly fashion. Uh, and so this is what they do. They, they make confession to the Lord, the God of their fathers, to do his will. They se separate yourselves from the people of the land from your foreign wives. The assembly agreed, but they have to do it in the right order. So over a three-month period, the people come and they meet with the, uh, with the elders and the uh, judges you see here. Those who had taken foreign wives come at appointed times, uh, and the elders and judges of every city uh, would deal with the matters. And this took uh, over several months, about three months, to deal with this. And uh, when that was finished, they came to an end of all the men who had married foreign women. So it took about three months to work through over 110 cases or about 110 cases uh, of this and what they were supposed to do about it. Now, if you were in church yesterday or you listened to the message, uh, you may be struggling with some of the same questions that I'm struggling with, which is what exactly do we do uh, with this situation? So now we're going to look at a quote from Derek Thomas, who is pastoring at the church Sinclair Ferguson used to pastor. And uh, here's what Derek Thomas says. <clears throat> this was not a case of a ban on interracial marriage. This is really important. Not a ban on interracial marriage, but rather a ban on interfaith marriage. It's not the mixing of ethnicities that was the problem. It was the mixing of religions that was the problem. He continues, it is not entirely clear from the text whether these were marriages in the proper sense. So this is an important part. I, I, I doubt that this is the answer to the question today, but this is certainly possible. Uh, the Hebrew word for married means literally, so that the Hebrew word being used in, in, Nehemiah, in Ezra that in 9 and 10, that is translated uh, married in a lot of translation, is literally to cause to dwell in the same house or to, to give a home. And it is possible that these men had simply taken these women in what we might now consider common law unions. In either case, it is also possible that they had divorced their existing Jewish wives in doing so. Applying historical narrative is always a tricky issue. It is always possible that while Scripture carefully and accurately describes events, it does not intend us to do precisely the same in our own context. What we have in Ezra 10 is perhaps more descriptive than prescriptive. In other words, it is possible that what 
Ezra does in these chapters is simply being infallibly described in God's Word, but not being prescribed to those who read it. Um, Just like many people do sinful things in the Bible, their sinful actions are infallibly described, but they are not prescribed, as in we should do likewise. So it's possible Ezra is just flat out sinning, but I seriously doubt that Ezra is just flat wrong in this particular situation. He continues, we may well be meant to conclude that Ezra was wrong in what he did, especially given that Nehemiah will later encounter the same problem and deal with it in an entirely different manner, forbidding further such liaisons, but, uh, but not insisting on separating existing ones. So in, in Nehemiah 13, uh, we will see that uh, Nehemiah, a couple decades later, also encounters intermarriage amongst the people, but he does not seem to force them to divorce and send away their spouses and children, although it is possible to read some of the phrases that way. It doesn't seem likely. Instead, he gets very mad at the people, calls down God's curse if they are to continue in this, and he makes them swear that they will stop intermarrying. They will no longer give their sons and daughters an intermarriage, but he doesn't seem to force divorce. And is Nehemiah right, and therefore Ezra is wrong? Ezra should not have forced divorce, like Nehemiah doesn't seem to force divorce. Should Ezra have simply Uh, gotten everyone to swear that they would not allow any further intermarriage? Well, possibly. It's also possible that Ezra is dealing with a larger group, which I think he is. He's dealing with probably a larger group, a significantly larger group of intermarriage, over 100 men, whereas Nehemiah may be dealing with a much smaller group and therefore may not have seen it as threatening to the life of the people of God and the stability of the people. He clearly saw it as dire. Don't get me wrong. He calls down curses. He begins pulling out people's hair. He beats some of the people, which he had some political authority. So I think you can make an argument he had the right to do exactly what he did. But he he makes them swear not to do this any further. But if you're dealing with a much smaller group of people, it might not have been necessary to send them away in divorce. Derek Thomas continues. Ezra 10 should not be used to justify divorce simply on the basis of one's spouse, that one's spouse is not a believer. So today in our culture, we should not justify divorcing our spouse because we're married to a non-believer. Nor should it be employed to suggest that a believer is not responsible, economically or otherwise, for his or her spouse and children after divorce proceedings have been finalized. So if someone does find themselves in the unfortunate situation of their spouse divorcing them and taking the children, it doesn't mean that you're out of any obligation to economically support or pay child support or whatever you might have to do in in a tragic situation like that. Don't use Ezra 9 and 10 as a modern-day validation for those behaviors. I think that's correct. Now, Don Carson, this is a long quote, but very much worth reading. I very much respect Don Carson. I think he's one of the premier uh, New Testament scholars, but also great on Old Testament. Don Carson says this on Ezra 10. Broadly speaking, Ezra 10 is understood in two different ways. According to the first view, what takes place is something akin to revival. Ezra's tears and prayer prove so moving that the leaders of the community, though they too have been compromised by these intermarriages, enter into a pact to divorce their pagan wives and send them home to their own people, along with whatever children uh, have sprung up from these marriages. Those who disagree with this decision will be expelled from the community, excuse me, expelled from the assembly of the exiles, that's in verse 8, henceforth to be treated like foreigners themselves. The appropriate councils are set up and the work is discharged. This is remarkably courageous, a sure sign of God's blessing, ringing evidence that these people love God even more than they love their own families. The purity of the the post-exilic community is maintained, and the wrath of God is averted. The lesson, then, is that one must deal radically with sin. Now, here's the second view. According to the second view, 
Although Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9 is exactly right, the steps that flow from it are virtually all wrong. Marriage, after all, is a creation ordinance. In any case, one cannot simply undo a marriage. If the law prohibits marriage with a pagan, it also prohibits easy divorce. So if the law is against marrying a pagan, it also is against easy divorce. What about all those children? Are they to be banished to their pagan grandparents without any access to the covenant community and the one God of all the earth? Quite apart from the psychological damage that doubtless will befall them, could not other steps have been taken instead? So this is the question that we want to wrestle with. Could not other steps have been taken by Ezra instead of the forced divorce and the exile of the wives and children? <clears throat> Carson continues. For example, all further mixed marriages could be prescribed, in other words, forbidden, and rigorously prevented under the sanction of being expelled from the community, from the assembly. So you could say, look, anyone else who marries a foreign wife will be exiled, but we're not going to force divorce now. Priests who have intermarried could be stripped of priestly rights and duties. The kind of widespread repentance that is evident could be channeled toward faithful study of the law, not least by these mixed families. What sanction is there for so inhumane an action as that in this chapter? So you see, this, this is the other side. Ezra was just wrong. He was way too harsh and severe. There are less severe ways he could have dealt with this problem and perhaps arrived at a similar solution. That's at least what this view says. Carson says, strictly speaking, the text itself does not adjudicate between these two interpretations. So the, the, there, there is no inspired narrator who shows up in Ezra 10 and says, okay, Ezra did what was right, or Ezra did what was wrong. The, the, the book does not explicitly say whether Ezra was right or wrong. But Carson says, though the first of the two is slightly more natural within the stance of the book. In other words, the idea that Ezra is doing the right thing, that this was an act of radical repentance, and that it was the right thing to do, it is slightly more natural within the stance of the book. Now, I agree with this. This is, this is I think, a very strong point. Within the book of Ezra, having preached through it now for several months, working through it verse by verse, when you get to this part of Ezra, Ezra has been set up as a noble figure worthy of imitation. He, he doesn't come in as some huckster, some, some, some sort of uh, uh, person exploiting the people. No, he comes as a man serious about Torah, studying it, obeying it, teaching it. Everything said about him is a glowing endorsement as far as the narrator is concerned. And the narrator could be Ezra himself under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're not sure about that. But by the time you get to this text, we are set up to see Ezra as a good example. His prayer in, in Ezra 9 is, a, is an exemplary prayer of repentance and remorse. He sets an example for the people. And the people follow through. Shechaniah recommends this mode of action. And Ezra does not contradict it. He endorses it. He actually, uh, he actually makes it a stipulation and, and, and threatens expulsion if they don't follow through. So I do think within the flow of the book, this, the view that Ezra did the right thing is more natural. But then Carson adds this, but is it more natural within the stance of the entire canon or of the Old Testament canon? So within the book of Ezra, it seems positive, but when you look at it within the whole Old Testament and then later in New Testament revelation, does it still seem like the right decision? Here's Carson's conclusion. Without meaning to avoid the issue, I suspect that in large me measure what? Both views are correct. This is his suspicion. He's not saying he knows this for sure. I suspect in large me measure both views are correct. There is something noble and courageous about the action taken. So you can see that, that there is something noble and courageous about what they do. And then Carson adds, and you can agree or disagree with this, there is also something heartless and reductionistic. 
One suspects that this is one of those mixed results uh, in which the Bible frankly abounds. So he's arguing that it's a mixed result, like the account of Gideon or of Jephthah or of Samson. Some sins have such complex tentacles that it is not surprising if solutions undertaken by repentant sinners are messy as well. So his conclusion is that generally it was probably noble, but it may have been overly harsh and severe. Perhaps there was a less severe way to do it, but generally speaking, it seems to have been on the right track. Another commentator, Gregory Goswell, says the gravity of the sin is underlined by labeling it in the text, unfaithfulness. This links it to the sin of Achan in Joshua 7. That sin caused Israel to lose her next battle at Ai and threatened the very existence of the nation in the promised land. So what this guy is saying is the, the word unfaithfulness links us back to Achan. Unfaithfulness is the kind of thing that could lead to the entire people being wiped out. They lost the battle at Ai. Many died as a result of this one man's breaking faith. Well, if over a hundred people have been faithless, marrying pagan women, what effect is this going to have on the people at large? Um, just to go to the story of Achan, Joshua 7, 1, you can see here, the, but the people of God, people of Israel broke faith. That's the same word from Nehemiah, faithlessness, in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of others, took some of the devoted things. He took some of the devoted things from Jericho. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Verse 15, and he who had taken, he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Verse 25, and Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And here it is. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them, that's his family, I believe, and his items with fire and stoned them with stones. Now you might say, generally speaking, putting someone to death by stoning is not something you should do, except in extraordinary situations. In this case, unfaithfulness had been brought into the camp. It threatened the very survival of God's people. It was such an outrageous thing. The fire of God, his wrath was burning against them, which is why they lost a battle and many died. And so now they have to deal with unusual severity to cleanse this sin from the camp, to remove this leaven from the dough. And so they stone him and all that he has, which I think clearly includes uh, his, his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, excuse me, his children, his, his wife, his family. This is an extraordinarily severe thing, far more severe than divorce and exile. But it was done because of faithlessness and it was done because it threatened the survival of the people. So what would normally not be acceptable, which is stoning someone to death in the camp of Israel, became the right thing to do because desperate times call for desperate measures. And that, that's what had to be done here. So th perhaps there's a parallel. There's, there's certainly the same Hebrew word for faithlessness is used in both Joshua 1 and Ezra 9 and 10. Now, let's just look at a few things about marriage in the Old Testament. Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus will draw out of this, who makes the two one? So you've got two, and they become one flesh. God creates the one flesh union, and Jesus says what God has made one, what God has joined together, don't let man tear apart. So you can clearly see Marriage was intended to be a man and a woman and that they were, they were bonded together in a lifelong one flesh union created by God. And therefore divorce, we should not be making two what God has made one. So divorce is already from the beginning looked at as not what God desires in speaking generally. 
And then let's, let's flash forward to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah again. In the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a prophet who preaches. This is the prophet Malachi. It's hard to pre precisely date the book of Malachi, but if I were to put my money on it, I would put him right around the end of the book of Nehemiah, but it's possible he was also ministering during the time of, uh, of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are, you know, a, a dec 15 years or so apart from when the book of Ezra ends and when the book of Nehemiah begins. It's about a 15-year or so gap. And so they're in the same lifetime. Ezra and Nehemiah minister together in the book of, of Nehemiah. Ezra shows up in Nehemiah 8 and in Nehemiah 12. And Ezra and Nehemiah work together in those texts. So they, they lived at the same time. And I believe Malachi is pro prophesying at that time. Because in the book of Malachi, you have a rebuilt temple, which is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. You have uh, governors, which was something that happened during the reign of the Persians. So it fits the same time period with governors. You had Jeshua, the governor, and uh, later Nehemiah, I, I believe, becomes something like a governor. Maybe he is the governor at a certain point. I, can't, I have to look at it. But the Persian period had the governors. Malachi is dealing with priesthood, who's apathetic, offering lame animals. The people are apathetic. The people are not giving their tithes. And there's also a problem regarding intermarriage. So let's look at Malachi. I'm, I'm going to date Malachi to right around the time of Ezra and probably during the time of Nehemiah. Uh, Malachi 2, 10 to 16 is this amazing section about marriage issues, and it parallels Ezra and Nehemiah in an amazing way. But look at this. Here, here's the rebuke. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless? So you got faithlessness returning here to one another. Okay, so w what is the faithlessness to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless. What have they done? An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Here it is. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has done what wrong? He has married the daughter of a foreign god. So married the daughter of a foreign god. So in other words, this means intermarrying with pagans. Daughter of a foreign god means a woman who worships Baal, or a false god. That's what daughter of a foreign god means. So they've married pagan women, daughters who worship foreign gods. Uh, they've married foreign women. So that sounds just like Ezra 9 and 10. It sounds just like Nehemiah 13. Intermarriage is going on here. So Malachi is addressing the same kind of situation, and here's what the Lord says. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of a man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So God is looking with extreme severe judgment on anyone who intermarries with pagan women. Then there's a second problem, which may be related. Verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts uh, it with favor from your hand. So you see here, the people are weeping in the temple as they go to offer their animal sacrifices because God is not seeming to regard their offerings. This may involve drought, failing crops, economic hardship and poverty. All that kind of stuff would be a sign of God's displeasure in the old covenant, remember? In the old covenant community. And so the people can tell God is not regarding their, their tears. He's not regarding their offerings. Why not? It's because of sin. What's the sin? Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Why is he not regarding our offerings and our prayers and tears? Here it is. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been 
faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Amazing. So you have, you have here explicitly marriage is called a covenant right here in Malachi. This is so significant. It's a marriage covenant. It's a bond between you and your wife. And who is a witness to your covenant? God is, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. So when you, when you marry your wife, husbands, you enter into a covenant with your wife. God is a witness between you and your wife when you enter that covenant. And if you are faithless to that covenant, God will bear witness against you in your faithlessness in violation of that covenant. Even even the word here, uh, companion and wife by covenant. Companion is a word for a close friend, an intimate friend. Marriage should bring about intimate friendship between husband and wife. And let me just add, this is also why we should not marry unbelievers. Because the companionship, the intimacy of friendship that you want, that you desire, that, that is best in marriage cannot happen between a believer and an unbeliever. Because if a believer says the number one most important thing to me is Jesus, God, the Trinity, God's word, the gospel, God's revelation, and how I make decisions is all based around what God says, how God teaches, how God thinks, my theology, my doctrine is how I run my life, then good luck having deep intimacy with your unbelieving spouse. If your unbelieving spouse is a kind person outwardly and a nice person outwardly, if they don't love the Lord and they don't want to go to church, and they don't want to read the Bible, and they don't care about your relationship with the Lord, then you cannot bond with your spouse over the most important thing in your life. This is going to rob your marriage of this companionship. It's going to rob your marriage of this kind of joy and intimacy that is based around Jesus in a, in a, in a strong Christian marriage. And so God does not want that for you, nor does he, nor does he want his, his, his glory dishonored uh, by companionship with an unbeliever. And so marry a believer, marry someone who loves the Lord. But back to the main point here, <clears throat> The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. The next couple verses are some of the hardest verses in the whole Hebrew Bible to translate. Translations vary vastly in this. Even, even the ESV and the NAS 95 and the King James and the NIV are all going to have different ways of translating this. We'll just go with the ESV for the, for the sake of argument right now. <clears throat> Did he not make them one? The two shall become one flesh from Genesis 2.24. I think this is alluding to Genesis 2.24. Did, did God not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What was he seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. <clears throat> so when God made the two one, the one flesh union is expressed physically through sexual union. And what is the natural result of this sexual union? It is, it is offspring. And he wants a believing husband and a believing wife to be married in, in this union. And he wants them to have children so that they can produce not just offspring, but godly offspring. So again, we're back to this issue of seed, but here it is godly offspring that God wants. And uh, if, if you're married to a pagan or an unbeliever, you're less likely to have godly offspring, especially in the old covenant community when syncretism was normal. It was such a common thing. But God in making us one was seeking godly offspring. Therefore, guard yourself in your spirit and don't be faithless to the wife of your youth. Verse 16 is very debated how to translate it. For the man who does not love his wife, literally the one, literally hates here in, in Hebrew, does not love his wife. The, the man who hates his wife uh, and divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless to your wife. 
So another way to translate this is God hates divorce. Uh, but the, the word man or God or I is not supplied in the Hebrew. All you have is, uh, you have to fill in the gaps in the, in the Hebrew. So it's either God hates divorce and the one who has divorced covers his, violent, uh, his garment with violence. But there's also a very strong grammatical argument to say it should, it's actually referring to the husband. For the man who hates his wife and divorces her uh, has covered his garment with shame. Either way, whether it's the husband wrongfully hating his wife and divorcing her, or God stating that he hates unlawful divorce, either way, the point is, is generally the same, which is um, that unlawful divorce is something that is wrong. Another translation for, I hate divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he who covers his clothing with violence, says Yahweh of hosts. Now, in Deuteronomy, there was an, at least an, an allowance of divorce in this highly contested text, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, so you got marriage here, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found, what, some indecency, literally the nakedness of a thing in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, etc., I won't go through all that. Some indecency probably refers to sexual morality, especially since the words irat the bar literally refer to the nakedness of a thing. Uh, it refers to indecent exposure, literally, uh, is one way to take it. But probably it refers to some kind of sexual uh, inappropriateness like adultery or some kind of sexual morality. Very likely when Jesus says divorce is only allowable uh, for sexual immorality, he calls it porneia, uh, sexual morality, which is largely thinking of adultery here. He's probably interpreting what the bar, some indecency or the nakedness of a thing as sexual morality, primarily as adultery. But at least here you have the idea that there was allowance for divorce in that case in Deuteronomy. Again, to quote Jesus, the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus says, have you not read that he created, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now notice in Deuteronomy 24, Moses didn't command you to write a certificate of divorce. He allows it. He doesn't command it. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart. So why is divorce ever in existence? Because of hardness of heart. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives in certain circumstances, like the nakedness of a thing, indecency, sexual morality. But from the beginning, it was not so. Adam and Eve were not made to be divorced. Marriage is not meant to be ended like that. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, perhaps that's the indecency or nakedness of a thing, sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. Let's also look at 1 Corinthians 7. We know for a fact in the new covenant, you are not to divorce your spouse because he or she is an unbeliever. There is no question about this. There's no wiggle room. Any Christian today who is married to an unbeliever and they appeal to Ezra 10, as justification to divorce their spouse, even though their spouse has not committed um, adultery and has not abandoned them, that believing spouse is sinning grievously and disobeying the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7, 12. Paul says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, so any brother, that's a believer, has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, what does it say? He should not divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving spouse is, this is different from how Ezra would talk, made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it are, is, they are holy. Now, I, I do wonder here, see, it says, otherwise your children would be unclean. I wonder if this is a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, I, I don't, I, I'm kind of on my own here. I don't know a lot of people who said this, take this with a bag of salt, not just a grain of salt. I don't want to be by myself saying something that no one's ever said before. But just thinking here, he's using Old Testament language of unclean. In the Old Covenant, uh, close intimacy with a Gentile, uh, sharing meals with Gentiles could make you unclean. Uh, a, a child born to a believer and unbeliever, I would assume, would be in this state of impurity or unclean, uh, uncleanness. Perhaps that's why the children are sent away with the unbelieving spouse in the Old Testament, in Ezra. But in the New Covenant, actually, it's not that the unbelieving spouse makes you dirty. No, actually, the unbelieving spouse is made clean, in a sense, or made holy, set apart by your presence in the home. Same for the wife to the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. In other words, in the new covenant, the children are not ritually impure because they have an unbelieving husband or wife. No, they're actually made clean or holy, set apart by the believing wife or husband. And what I think this means is, this is probably a difference with the new covenant, but instead of the uncleanness spreading to the believer and infecting them, which is what Ezra feared, instead the cleanness or the holiness of the believer spreads the unbeliever, and has a chance in God's providence, there's no chance, it could in God's providence uh, transform them and lead to conversion. So it could be that the cleanness issue here is, is a difference between the covenants. And uh, this doesn't mean you're saved by being married to a Christian or that you're saved because you're born or a child of a Christian. It means that you're set apart in the realm of the holy. You're around the immediate influence of a believer, and that is very likely to lead you to Christ. Not a guarantee, but it could, and that's the aim, to lead you to Christ. Look at verse 15. Paul says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, and in this text, this does mean divorce. Separates here is not talking about legal separation or something. This is, this is referring to divorce. Let it be so. If the unbeliever wants to leave, let him leave. In such cases, the, the, the believer, the brother or sister, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will uh, save your wife? Clearly, the salvation of the unbelieving spouse is aimed at. That's what the holiness, I think, refers to. But there's no guarantee that you'll save them. And if they want out, they want divorce, you can let them go. You're not bound. And I believe the not bound here, this is controversial, but I believe the phrase not enslaved here uh, means that you, can, uh, you are free to remarry. That's my interpretation. Others disagree with that, but uh, that, that's my interpretation there. So in the new covenant, you are not to divorce your unbelieving spouse unless they abandon you or commit adultery on you. Now back to Ezra 10. Derek Thomas again, quote, two questions arise from Ezra 10. Here we go. First, how can the prophet Malachi denounce divorce in Malachi 2.16? Well, Ezra 10 seems to demand it. So you have denouncing divorce and you have demanded divorce. And, and here's the first thing I would say. Malachi 2's condemnation of divorce is referring to an Israelite husband divorcing an Israelite wife unlawfully. It's not referring to an Israelite husband divorcing a pagan wife. 
which you could possibly argue could be potentially lawful in the Ezra situation. So Malachi is dealing with an Israelite divorcing an Israelite without proper grounds. Ezra 10 is dealing with an Israelite divorcing a pagan non-Israelite, you could argue, on proper grounds. That's, that's the debate. And second, why does Nehemiah only a few decades later seem to forbid intermarriage with pagans, but not insist that existing unions be dissolved? And one answer is that Nehemiah is dealing with a much smaller case that does not threaten the whole people of God. Ezra is dealing with a larger case, over 110 or about 110, 15 marriages that are threatening uh, the survival of the covenant people. That could be a redemptive historic difference in time that is so significant that Ezra, using past scriptural revelation, much prayer, the counsel of other godly people around him, they, they, they decided the conclusion was, given how dire the situation, this time it demands mass divorce. This would be like I said in the sermon, if you have gangrene that's coming up your arm, if you let it go, it's going to go all the way up and kill you. So you may end up having to amputate from the elbow down, not because you don't want your arm, but because you would rather have your whole rest of your body than to die. And so it could be that the intermarriage was like the gangrene that was about to take over and destroy the whole people. And Ezra, studying scripture, praying with godly counsel in a unique moment in time, chose to do the severe thing, which was just a total amputation of the children and the wives who were pagan. That is possible. So Derek Thomas continues, one possible solution already alluded to is to note that the word employed for married is not the customary word in Hebrew and is not translated this way except here and in Nehemiah 13. So it may not even be marriages, it may be common law unions, and in which case they're just sending away their, they're just sending away their live-in girlfriends. I truly doubt that that's correct, but that's, it's at least grammatically possible. Derek Thomas says, it is possible, therefore, that what we have here is not the dissolution of marriage, but an example of illicit unions. Technically, they were living in sin. In addition, we should note that the word divorce is not used in this passage, although the word for separate or send away is the same word used in Deuteronomy 24 for if a man divorces his wife and sends her away. That sends her away is the same word. So it is used in a context of divorce in Deuteronomy. We should note the word for divorce is not used in this passage and that foreign in verse 2, foreign wives, is the same Hebrew word rendered, so the word for, foreign in, in, in Ezra 10 too, is the same word rendered adulterous throughout the book of Proverbs. Beware of the adulterous woman. It's literally beware of the foreign woman. Uh, so there's something to that. Quote, if mass divorce is the point at issue here, however, however difficult it may be to reconcile with the rest of scripture, whether Old or New Testament, these were highly unusual circumstances involving the purity of a highly unusual race of people, the covenant community of God, the smallness, now this is important, the smallness of the community in its post-exilic post form meant that this issue had consequences for the entire community in a way that, just like at the time of Achan and uh, when the people were taking the promised land, in a way that threatened its very survival. The proposal that Ezra enforced and the community covenanted to was not fully successful as we, we will see because remarriage returned but that doesn't mean it was the wrong thing to do because it wasn't finally successful. So you could argue in this moment in time, the post-exilic community was tiny. Their survival was very precarious. The faithfulness of the people was of dire significance. And therefore, a severe act was done because the survival of the uh, community was on the line. All right, let's, let's just break it down to some points here. Let's be slow. Let's, let's, just, let's be slow to condemn Ezra's decision. And, and I, do, I do mean this. You are, you are free to disagree with Ezra based on what the rest of Scripture teaches about marriage and divorce, and, and you may be right. 
Uh, I, I'm not there yet. Uh, I, I am still hesitatingly, tentatively, but I am still uh, behind Ezra's decision. And, and part of it is because of the unknowns in this text. There are a lot of things we don't know. The word for marriage is not used. So maybe these were just live-in girlfriends, common law marriages. They weren't real marriages. So it's possible you're not even dealing with divorce here. The word, the explicit word divorce and the explicit word marriage are not there in Ezra 9 and 10 or in Nehemiah 13. So this may not even be intermarriage, in which case Ezra was surely not wrong to send them away. It would, it would seem. Also, there's, there's all kinds of things we just don't know about this circumstance, right? And we need to be slow to condemn when we are ignorant of certain details. Ezra is dealing with a situation where previous Old Testament scripture did not directly address his situation. So Ezra's working from the text, drawing it to, to situations that hadn't been addressed explicitly in the text. And, and this happens, right? Just, just take the issue of, um, of severe, perhaps life-threatening physical abuse in a marriage. The New Testament nowhere explicitly addresses what elders at a church should do when a woman is being beaten, threatened with a weapon, bruised, maybe even having a bone broken or sent to the hospital over a wicked husband who is treating her this way. The Bible does not say whether it is lawful to divorce a husband for that reason. The Bible never explicitly addresses intense physical violence in the home and what to do about it. So do you see how we're in a similar situation as Ezra? as elders or as church leaders, you go, okay, a woman comes to you, and I've never had this situation happen like this, but if a woman comes to you and says, my husband uh, has, has physically beaten me, bruised me up, continues to threaten me, threaten my life. Okay, I think any godly elder is going to say, you need to get out of the home. You need to get into a safe house somewhere. You, you need to be under protection for this man. Uh, if, if we, we, let's call the police. If, if he has physically attacked you, let's call the police. If we need a restraining order, whatever, that, I, I have no problem with that. I think most elders would, would be fine with that. That automatically does not lead to divorce. So there's, there's still a debate. Can this wife divorce her husband? Well, the Bible only gives two explicit grounds for divorce. One is adultery or sexual morality, which Jesus gives in Matthew 19. The other one is in 1 Corinthians 7, where if you are married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever doesn't want to live with you but, but abandons you, then you are allowed to let them go. You're allowed to basically divorce them. And I believe you can remarry because you're no longer enslaved. What about, what about abuse? Well, people would say the scripture doesn't explicitly talk about that. Well, Ezra was dealing with a very difficult situation that the Old Testament previous revelation did not explicitly address. So he took what he knew about the Bible and he prayed and sought wisdom from counselors and he, and he looked at the people and he reached a conclusion that he believed was the right thing to do, but it wasn't explicit in the text. So what do you do? Well, uh, with an abuse situation, you could say, okay, if the husband's a member of the church and he's physically abusing his wife, like legitimately, he should be immediately put under church discipline. And if he refuses to repent, he should be eventually, after a series of months, excommunicated from the church by a church vote, in which case he is now to be treated or regarded as an unbeliever. So now that Christian wife who's been abused, if he is excommunicated, he is now to be regarded as an unbeliever. Therefore, she is married to an unbeliever as far as, uh, as, far as we can tell, right? And Here's what many Christians, even, even some of the Puritans taught this back in the days of the Westminster Confession and then that time period of four, three, four hundred years ago, you can see some of the, these careful thinkers and writers who said similar things. 
And more recently, the PCA put out a great position paper on divorce uh, in 1992. It's just, it's worth its weight in gold. You go find that online. It's about 100 pages long and read it. The thing is incredible. But here's, here's the conclusion. This is a wisdom call based on previous revelation that doesn't explicitly address severe life-threatening abuse in the home. Here's what we'd say. Here's what our church would say. We would say, okay, if that husband's a member, he's excommunicated, he is now considered an unbeliever. And if he is so treating his wife that it is not safe for her and her children to live in the same home as him because he is threatening them with weapons, he is punching the kids or the wife, he's leaving bruises, maybe he's broken a bone, he slammed someone against the wall, he's, he's, just, he's, a, he's a menace, he's, he's an absolute threat to life and safety, then we would say, number one, he's now an unbeliever by, by we are regarding him as an unbeliever based on church discipline principles in the New Testament. Number two, he has made it impossible for the wife and children to live in the same home as him because it is not safe for them. In which case, he has, he has not himself abandoned his wife and kids. He has forced his wife and kids out of the home. Therefore, he has forced his wife and kids uh, to abandon him. In other words, it's a kind of abandonment. If you can't be around this guy without him threatening you or beating you, then he has abandoned you by forcing you to abandon him. So we would say, okay, if, if a man is truly on the verge of killing his wife and children, the, and he is not repentant, he is excommunicated, he's treated as an unbeliever, and therefore, because it, there's, after, let's say that months and months go by, and maybe even years go by, and there's no way to reconcile, he will not repent, we, we would conclude, given the right circumstances, okay, at a certain point, he's an unbeliever, by every sense of it, it's no longer safe for you to live with him, there's no way for you and the kids to live with him in a way that makes us feel comfortable at all, he's a menace, Therefore, he, you're married to an unbeliever and he has abandoned you by forcing you out of the home. In which case, we would argue, I believe that could lead to potential grounds for divorce. Now, the elders would need to have, weigh in on that. This would need to be a months long, perhaps even a year plus, two years long deal. But eventually I could argue, yeah, I think that abandonment by an unbeliever could, in, could involve severe domestic abuse and life-threatening kind of situations. So you see, this is like Ezra. The, the text doesn't explicitly talk about severe physical violence, but I think that it gives us enough components to work with that you actually can work back and deal with. Abandonment by an unbeliever could be, uh, could be the kind of categorization that you use in that kind of situation. But I could see how someone could disagree with exactly how to go about that because there's a degree of a wisdom call going on there. <clears throat> Number two, godly leaders and the people in Ezra are in virtual unanimous agreement. Only four people dissent. This is out of a group of, what, 55,000 people at least? Probably if they're having children in exile and they're having more children than there are parents per family, you could be dealing with, I mean, at this point, you could have 100,000 people. It's, it's hard to know, but we got at least 55,000 people and only four people dissent. That's amazing. Only four are named as dissenters. This makes me think that the people were not off their rocker in their decision. This makes me think that Ezra was on the right track. But can you imagine such a drastic decision? A hundred plus women sent away and their children sent away and only four people dissent. This makes me think the spirit of God was working through Ezra. People were seeing that this was the right thing to do given the circumstances and they were submitting to godly leadership and only four people objected. This to me leans in the direction of they were doing the right thing. Not that the people are always right, but this, this is an unusual thing. Number three, nothing in the text of Ezra clearly indicates that they were doing the wrong thing. Nothing in the text, to me, even hints at the idea that Ezra is doing the wrong thing. To me, he is presented as doing the right thing. Number four, at the same time, Ezra's actions are descriptive rather than prescriptive. 
Thus, his actions are not automatically infallible. The description of Ezra's action is infallible, but the actions themselves may not be. We've talked about that. Number five, due to the sin already committed of intermarrying with pagan women, the choice these Israelite men faced was grievous either way. Which choice was worse? This is the question. Which choice was wor worse? Option A, idolatry continues in the people. Option B was divorcing and sending away the wives and children. Which one's worse? That's the discussion. And Ezra and many of the godly men, almost all of them concluded idolatry would be worse than, than divorce in this situation. Number six, divorce, even when justified, is exceedingly painful, and the sending away of wife and children is grievous. Yet the alternative uh, seemed worse to them, idolatry spreading among the people. So uh, if, if idolatry is worse, it would be idolatry spreading among the people, and that would be what they conclude to be worse. Number seven, idolatry would eventually lead Israel where? Back into exile, and it threatened the very existence of the nation and the messianic line the Holy Seed. Number eight, however, in Nehemiah 13, intermarriage returns just decades later, and Nehemiah does not appear to have forced divorce. But we said that could be because he's dealing with a much smaller group and much less threatening to the people. This is what it says in Nehemiah 13. This is about, I don't even know, I, I, I don't want to get the year, maybe 25 years after Ezra 10. I don't have the exact date. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. This is intermarriage with pagans. It doesn't say how many, but it was probably a smaller group. And it says this, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. This shows you there's, there's serious compromise. These children are being largely raised by their mothers who are pagans who don't even speak Aramaic or Hebrew. And they're, being, they're only speaking pa the pagan language. They don't even speak the language of God's people. This is showing you what this is gonna do to the next generation. They're not even gonna be able to know the Bible in their, own, in their original language, and they're gonna be likely having the language and the, the religion of their pagan mothers. Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them. This is not cussing, okay? This is cursing in God's name. This is a legitimate, real, uh, biblical kind of cursing. Not cussing, cursing. Um, he's basically saying, God will bring judgment on you for this. You must repent of this kind of a thing. He beat some of them, pulled out their hair, and made them take an oath. Now, you could look at this as being sinful in the way he's acting. He's not turning the other cheek. He's pulling the beard out of, out of their cheek. But Nehemiah had political authority to enforce punishments in a way that you and I do not in the church in a kind of physical way. And so it is very possible to see this as actually not sinful on Nehemiah's part. Although just like with Ezra, some people argue that this is Nehemiah sinning. Uh, I am, again, inclined to say that Nehemiah, I don't think, is being painted here in a wicked light. Maybe it wasn't the best way to deal with it, but he knows that the life of the people is at stake, and therefore he deals with it severely. And I, I think he had the authority to do this, and it may not have been wrong. And it, he says here, take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. He makes them swear not to intermarry further. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, uh, there was no king like him, and he, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Which is treachery. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests. Some people think this means he got them to divorce their wives. He cleansed them from everything foreign. But I don't think that's clear in the text. Could be. 
but I'm not going to swear to that. All right, I want to move toward a conclusion just by quoting a smattering of different commentators and pastors. Here we go. Gary Smith has a pretty helpful commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah. He says, The difference in advice between Ezra and Paul may lie in the different social and religious contexts where Ezra and Paul lived. For in the Old Testament, mixed marriages often led the husband and children into pagan worship. So in the Old Testament, mixed marriages often led to pagan worship for the husband and children. While in the New Testament, mixed marriages often led to the conversion of the pagan spouse. In both cases, the key question hinged on what would preserve and promote the kingdom of God in this fallen world versus what would threaten it. I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm not saying I agree with everything here. I'm just giving you a smattering of perspectives. The NIV application commentary says this. Thus, the forced departure of the wives is not unlike the forced removal that God imposed on the inhabitants of Canaan through Joshua's conquests. The expulsion of the women and children represents a reconquering of the promised land. Without these drastic measures, the very restoration promised by the prophets is in serious danger. So again, similar argument to someone we've seen before, but that drastic times call for drastic measures is the argument. Uh, John MacArthur in his uh, workbook on uh, Ezra Nehemiah says, desperate circumstances sometimes call for desperate measures, and this solution may well have been the best. Now, I, MacArthur's pretty, uh, pretty black and white in the way he will present things, which, which I, I, we, we love that about J-Mac. And here, even he says he's not sure. Um, Ezra's, Ezra's de desperate, he was in desperate circumstances. It called for desperate measures. And this solution of Ezra may well have been the best. But MacArthur, I think, I feel like I'm, I'm basically exactly where MacArthur is. I think it, it, Ezra's solution may well have been the best. I just don't have enough information to know for sure if it was the best. And so I, I, I like uh, his tentative affirmation. It, it may well have been the best decision. It may not have been, but it, but it very well may have been the best. The New American Commentary says, the family and the convictions of the whole religious community were at stake. Desperate times, right? The family and the convictions of the whole religious community were at stake. Ezra's action was drastic, but he chose the path most likely to protect the covenant community from pagan syncretism. I, I tend to agree with that. That what was at stake was the, was the faithfulness of the whole covenant community, and therefore they had to amputate the paganism. Dean Ulrich, who wrote a great book on Ezra Nehemiah in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series, edited by Don Carson, he said, quote, these measures may seem harsh, the divorce, but the identity and mission of God's people after the exile were at stake. Again, I tend to agree with that. Mark Roberts, who's a PCA pastor and commentator from the 1980s, I believe, uh, says, quote, was Ezra correct? I love this. Was Ezra correct? I don't know. Did God hate the continuation of pagan, pagan intermarriages even more than breaking them up? I am not sure. And that's the way a lot of people sort of are on this. Very possibly it was the right thing to do. Very possibly it may have even been the best thing to do. I'm just not 100% sure. Gregory Goswell says, quote, Certainly Ezra 10 gives us the strongest possible warning not to enter into marriage with one who does not share our faith in Christ. Amen to that. Uh, Ezra 10 could not be a stronger warning to us today that we should never deliberately enter into a marriage with a non-Christian. We're asking for major trouble, and we're asking for, if you're a man about to marry a non-Christian woman, you're asking for the number one influence on your children to be someone who does not love the Lord Jesus. 
wow, why would you put yourself and your children through that if you have the choice? Derek Kidner, who's a brilliant, concise, pithy commentator, like with no rival in the last century that I'm aware of. He's a great commentator. He said, the situation described in Ezra 9 and 10 was a classic example of one in which the lesser of two evils had to be chosen. And uh, that, that seems to be uh, along the right track there. So I, I don't have a definitive answer. My lean is still with what I said yesterday in the sermon. I tend to give Ezra the benefit of the doubt, given the fact that I just don't know all the details. And I think the way he's presented in the book, he's presented as virtuous and as commendable. I don't see him being presented as, as, as someone leading the people astray in this way. I think he was in a desperate situation. And uh, the uniqueness of that uh, uh, makes me have pause to come out strongly in condemnation of Ezra's activity. It is possible it was slightly too severe or slightly too harsh in some ways, but he was also in a situation that you've never been in and that I've never been in. And therefore, I want to be slow when a bunch of godly men come together and agree together to do something, and there's very few dissenting voices, and they carry it through over a three-month period, and it seems to be presented as the right thing and seems to have had a positive effect, although it didn't solve the problem entirely. Uh, I, I tend to give the benefit of the doubt to Ezra. So I hope that gives you some food for thought. Thanks for watching. Uh, hopefully we'll do one of these again soon.